The title of this sermon is, Which Way is Love's Way? Which Way is Love's Way? And my text from 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, love does not insist on its own way. Or literally in the Greek, love does not seek, strive for, aim at the things of itself. Well, if love does not insist on its own way, what way does love insist on? What does love seek and strive for and aim at? Is it the beloved's way? Because love has no way of its own? We'll call this first suggestion complete submission to the beloved. Like Ruth to Naomi, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. It sounds like Ruth is saying to Naomi, your agenda is my agenda. Your wish is my command. Your welfare, as you understand it, is my sole concern. Under complete submission, we may define agape love as willing and working the best for the beloved, which is whatever they think is best, no matter what the cost to me. It's as if you went out drinking with your friend Tom after service and supper at the Church of the Cross, and after a few rounds, Tom looks at you and says, it's your turn to buy. In fact, everybody is even in terms of paying for the first two rounds of drinks. And Tom looks a little flushed, and his speech is a little thick, but he wants another round. So you buy it for him and the group. Love does not insist on its own way, but follows in the way set out by the beloved. But Jesus' love for the world, including his enemies, did not mean submitting to their will. When we read Philippians chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 26, as we heard them read this afternoon, we realize that it was to his Father's will that Jesus submitted. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Obedient to whom? Obedient to God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his death, Jesus prays, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Who is he talking to? He's talking to God. And if we read the entire book of Ruth, we discover that Ruth, in fact, defies Naomi, who tells her to stay in Moab. Ruth becomes Naomi's redeemer by returning to Israel with her and being proactive in finding food for them both, gleaning in Boaz's field. And the book of Ruth is not about the submission of Ruth under the plans and purposes of Naomi, but of Ruth filling up the emptiness and bitterness of Naomi's losses by marrying Boaz and producing a child, Obed, who will be considered as Naomi's own grandson. There is loyalty and love in the book of Ruth, but the only complete submission by its characters is to the plans and providence of God. Ruth becomes the great-grandmother of King David, 
and the ancestor of Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, complete submission to the beloved's will is what we call infatuation, the unhealthy and unstable result of erotic love gone amiss, not agape love. So which way is love's way if not complete submission to the beloved? Why isn't equal regard for the beloved love's way? Love your neighbor as yourself. Doesn't this imply self-love? Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, as we heard, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. This sounds good. Agape love would then mean willing and working the best for the beloved so far as it is consistent with the best for me. The beloved's best and my best should be equally compromised if compromise is necessary. Back to drinking with Tom. Suppose after finishing the round you bought, that's the third round, Tom wants a fourth. It's his turn, and off he goes to the bar. He comes back angry. The bartender has cut him off. No more drinks for me, he says, and utters an expletive. He pushes a $20 bill towards you and says, here, you go, he'll serve you. By now, his gait is unsteady, as well as his speech thick and his face flushed. You say, no, I think we've had enough. Tom begins to cuss you out. And you think, I don't need this abuse. So you get up and leave. Love's way is willing and working the best for the beloved, so far as it's consistent with the best for me. Jesus, of course, held nothing back in his love for us. His well-being was completely compromised by a shameful and painful death on the cross. And just before writes, look, Paul writes, look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others, he says, count others as more significant than yourselves. And after writing it, he says, have the mind of Christ, who made himself nothing and humbled himself. Equal regard certainly doesn't measure up to the example of Jesus. But even more troublesome, in suggesting this meaning for love's way, I have quoted the second commandment in the summary of the law, love your neighbor as yourself, while ignoring the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's only in the context of obedience to the first commandment that we can understand the meaning of love your neighbor as yourself. That meaning is love your neighbor as God loves your neighbor, and as God loves you. Loving God, you see, enables love of neighbor, because in loving God, we come to share his perspective on our neighbor. We see our neighbor as God sees him. His will for our neighbor can transform our will for our neighbor. Psalm 112 with which we began our service, sketches the portrait 
of someone who fears the Lord and greatly delights in his commandments, which is a pretty good definition of loving the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. According to the psalmist, the person who loves God is able to love his neighbor because of who this person is, gracious, merciful, righteous, unafraid, firm, trusting, steady. And because of what this person does, deals generously, lends, conducts his affairs with justice, distributes freely, gives to the poor. Remember that distributive justice is nothing more or less than meeting the real needs of others. So the answer to the question, which way is love's way, is just this. Love's way is God's way, and we must insist on it. But how in the world do we work for God's best for the beloved at whatever cost to ourselves? We have enough trouble determining what God wants for us. How can we know that for anybody else? Actually, we know quite a bit about God's best for each of us from the scriptures. We know that God wants our neighbor to obey all his universal commandments. And we know that God wants our neighbor to receive all the fulfillment of God's universal promises. Suppose that in the days after the episode with Tom at the bar, you become convinced that he has a drinking problem. What do you do in love's way? You gather his girlfriend, his roommate, his pastor, Mark Booker, and set up a meeting with Tom. It's called in AA circles an intervention. Together, these significant trusted people in Tom's life will confront him with the reality that his drinking is out of control, that he needs to stop drinking, and that he needs help to do it. Now, admittedly, this is a high-risk venture. If Tom rejects you, it may cost you a friend, and his presence at the Sunday night after dinner drinking fellowship may end. But love takes risks when it is clear, as it is with addiction, what God's best is for Tom. But what do we do when our neighbor has fallen into painful perplexities, not covered clearly by God's universal commands, or remedied by the fulfillment of God's universal promises? Let's assume we have no clue what God's best is for our neighbor in this situation, whether it's ending an unhappy relationship, leaving a negative work situation, or coping with a dysfunctional family. How do we will and work God's best for him, whatever the cost to ourselves? We can always do so in three simple ways. First, be present to him or her, out of concern. Job's comforters sat a week with him in silence after disaster struck him. Their trouble began when Job lamented his fate, and they started trying to answer the unanswerable questions. So in the face of painful perplexities on the part of your neighbor, shut up and hang in there. <laughs> Second, pray for your neighbor, asking God to make his best known to him, and even perhaps to you. And third, point him to God. Remind him, however circumstances may make it seem doubtful, that God is his loving 
Heavenly Father. Now, if as a result of your intercession, God should give you a word of counsel or wisdom for your neighbor, share it, but with patience and kindness, without arrogance or rudeness. In other words, with a deep and sincere humility that Mark Booker preached about last Sunday. The difference between a spirit-led friend practicing agape love and a self-righteous busybody is humility. Having insisted that love's way is God's way, I must confess to you that it is not an attractive proposition. It's much easier to defer to the intentions of our neighbor. This is what our culture tells us to do. Hey, the best is relative. Don't presume to know what the best is for anyone else. Or we find that it's easier to offer our neighbor a limited concern balanced by our own felt needs. To understand agape love as willing and working the best as God gives us understanding of the best for our neighbor asks us to commit our neighbor to what we are reluctant to commit ourselves to, and that is abandonment to the will of God. Deep in our hearts, most of us, and I'm talking to committed Christians, most of us, most of the time, say to God, thy will be done, so long as, provided that, on condition that, Can we really pray to know God's will for our neighbor so we can love him by insisting on God's best for him when we don't really want to know God's will for ourselves? The agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, which was our gospel reading, haunts us. What dreadful thing might God ask us to do if we really gave him carte blanche? What dependencies might he remove? What comforts threaten? What challenges present? Financial security? Ill health? Job loss? Persecution for his sake? Displacement from family and friends? My fear was always that if I really abandoned myself to God's will, he would call me to go to New Guinea as a missionary. Hot, humid, mosquitoes, cannibals. The stories of the martyrs intended to strengthen our faith and give us a desire to follow their good example perhaps have the opposite effect, to terrify us. Martyrdom is what happens when people fall into the hands of the living God. Abandonment to the will of God is a terrible mistake. If I am right about our reluctance, then no wonder we seldom achieve real agape love with God's perspective on the best for our neighbor, understood and communicated to him by word or deed. Instead, we do whatever our neighbor wants for a while, and then retreat behind selfish barricades with a sense of entitlement, having sacrificed ourselves, however briefly, for another. This is not the love that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13. This is not what Jesus would work in us, having poured out God's love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit which has been given to us. To love with agape love, we must commit ourselves 
and our neighbor unreservedly to God, who alone knows the best for us both. As John writes in his epistle, God is love, and whoever abides in God abides in love, and God abides in him. By this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And if the intervention with Tom goes badly, and he tells us to stop meddling in other people's lives, that he hasn't got a drinking problem and can stop anytime he wants, and basically that we can go to hell, is that the end of love's way? Not at all. Tune in over the coming Sundays to learn about the durability of agape love. Amen.